Raising Peace would like to acknowledge the traditional owners of the land on which this podcast was recorded, edited and mixed. We pay our respects to Elders past, present and future and acknowledge that this was, is and always will be Aboriginal land. Nations shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks and that they shall learn war no more. In this episode of the Raising Peace podcast, we are considering what it would take to avoid war. We have three people coming from different perspectives who spoke at the 2022 Raising Peace Festival. First up, we have Dr Alison Bronowski, a former Australian diplomat, emphasising the need for diplomacy and adhering to the UN Charter, rather than focusing on alliances and military options. Then Reverend Dr Thorwald Lorenzen, a theologian who speaks about adopting a culture of peace which gives priority to people over war. Finally, the then Ambassador of Costa Rica to Australia, Victor Vargas, speaks about his nation's experience in doing away with its military and what that led to. This podcast promotes a peace mindset over a military one. Hosting the event and introducing each of the speakers is Margaret Reynolds. Our first speaker is Dr Alison Bronowski and her topic is Can Australia Avoid Another War? Thank you, Alison. So we have to consider... Can Australia avoid another war? Now, my working life was as a diplomat, and the diplomats get rolled in before the generals. And if the diplomats fail, the generals come in, and then there's a war. My argument is forget the war and have the diplomacy, because in the end, after the war, you have to have a conference. So let's just skip the war and have the conference, is my simplistic view as as an ex-diplomat. Unfortunately, this is not the way it it currently works. After World War I, those of us old enough to remember, and certainly after World War II and after Vietnam, it would not have been conceivable, I think, to any of us, that we would be contemplating another war. We were so over our our wars, so were our parents, so were our grandparents, that we actually thought it was inconceivable that we would go to war anymore. People in Europe had the same view. They said, forming the European Union gradually, step by step, The reason for doing it was because fighting war to resolve their individual national differences was primitive. And they would do something more rational and spare themselves the terrible disasters and sacrifices that they had seen throughout the 20th century and before. And the European was absolutely the European Union were absolutely right about that. The only problem was they got themselves involved in NATO. 
and NATO is a defense organization which obliges each of them to defend the other with military means. Furthermore, we all, all of us, signed up to the UN Charter and the UN Charter said that we will not resort to force against other nations unless we are directly attacked or unless the UN Security Council obliges us to do something about that. All of us, modern democracies, signed up to that. We have signed numerous treaties since then saying the same thing, including the Asian, uh, the ASEAN Treaty of Peace, Peace, sorry, Peace and, and Amity, which says, echoes the UN Charter and says, we will not use or threaten uh, force against any of the members of the treaty, or indeed against anybody else. And yet, and yet, that is exactly what we are now doing. Why are we now doing this? And who is doing it? Let's face it. The only countries, apart if you spare the current situation with between Russia and Ukraine, the only countries in the world who threaten others with military force to achieve their own objectives are the United States and its allies, which includes us. So we are actually breaching the very undertakings in international law that we have signed up to, and which we keep referring to, or the US does, and some people in Australia do, as the international rules-based order. I am so over the international rules-based order, which we've been hearing about since 1907, 19, um, since 20 sorry, 2017. And the whole point about that is it's a US-created order that suits the United States imperial empire around the world, which is an empire of business undergirded by military means. We subscribe to that instead of to the actual rules-based order, the international rules-based order to which we and others, everyone else, almost everyone else, signed up with the UN Charter in 1945. Nothing has changed. They are right to say that this is what we are obliged to sustain. And forcing our views on other countries by military means has in always been a disaster, but particularly for Australia, ever since 1945, we have not fought a war with our American allies in which we have been successful, not one. If we were to find ourselves, because of our alliance with the United States, at war with China, it's a war we would lose. They would lose. We would lose it by ourselves, and we would also lose it by proxy because we would be a, an enemy of China and a very easily sacrificed enemy, which could be attacked by China, and the United States could sit back and see it happen. Why we go on with this obviously 
insane behavior is beyond me. The only explanation I have for it at the moment is that in Australia, over the last 10 plus years, we have degraded diplomacy, we have diminished the foreign service, we have nationalized security in every possible part of our government, academia, and media, to the point where nobody can say anything in Canberra that opposes the sorts of views that I've just expressed. If I said this stuff in Canberra, there are people who would just shut down and not listen. And so that's why I particularly welcome what Raising Peace is doing, what all the other organisations, the Anti-Orcus Alliance, my own organisation, Australians for War Powers Reform, is doing. And I'll just end up with a very quick um, promo for that. One of the things that our little organisation is trying to do is legislatively change the way Australian governments go to war, which is, in effect, a decision by the Prime Minister of the day or a very small group around him, all appointed by him or her. And all they have to do is say, the troops go and they go. Now, in most modern democracies, that is not the case. Fortunately, as the ambassador will tell you, in Chile, they don't even have armed forces to do that, which is a lovely um, consummation devoutly to be wished. But in Australia, that is what happens. And what we are trying to do, many would like to outlaw all war, but what we're trying to do is step by step say, the government of Australia cannot do this without consulting the elected members of the parliament in both the lower house and the Senate and, for, and, and oblige them to have a debate and vote before Australian troops are committed to war anywhere Anytime. It now gives me very much pleasure to invite Reverend Dr. Thorold Lorenzo uh, to speak, and his topic is Peace Must Be Waged. Let me start with a, a personal comment. Uh, when I was a child, um, I experienced war at first hand. I can still hear the sirens warning us of approaching bombers and compelling us to seek shelter. I can still see the sky filled with bombers and bombs raining down upon us like sparkling stars and exploding right around us. I lost two grandfathers in the war, one in the firebombing of Hamburg and the other one uh, because of, of a heartbreak because he could not defend his family. A baby brother died of lack of food and my mother was taken away by Russian soldiers. My immediate family was uprooted for years to come. 
The other source of my being part of the peace movement is my Christian faith. Since many wars have been started by so-called Christian nations and Christian leaders, let me say that for me, the waging of peace is part of my Christian identity. I affirm the basic melody of the Hebrew and Christian scriptures that nations shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks and that they shall learn war no more. Jesus of Nazareth was vehement, but he was nonviolent. During his life on earth, he declared peacemakers to be the children of God. And Christianity began when in the power of the spirit, Jesus Christ spoke peace into the lives of the disciples. So far, my personal comment. I would like to make a proposal. It has to do with my conviction that we need a paradigm shift from a culture where war is seen as a possibility, where war is seen as a effective response to human conflict, to a culture of peace. As a step towards a culture of peace, I would like to make the modest proposal that we make a conscious and conscientious decision, a presumption to agree to a presumption for peace and against war. Such a presumption would avoid two extremes. On the one hand, it would avoid the extreme of an ideological pacifism. Given human greed, nationalism and aggression, some wars may be unavoidable. If an aggressor attacks you, like in a school or in a shopping center, he or she needs to be stopped. Perhaps World War II, perhaps the Kosovo War, perhaps the war in the Ukraine fall into that category. But most wars are not necessary. In recent years, I have been part of the opposition to the wars in Vietnam, Syria, Iraq, and Afghanistan. On the other hand, a presumption for peace 
and against war while not denying human conflict, but it denies that war is the adequate response to human conflict. Traditional theories like war being the continuation of policy with other means, or if you want peace, you prepare for war, or even the just war theory no longer work in a nuclear age. I therefore suggest that a presumption for peace and against war should be the default position in our personal conscience and in our national culture. If there is a departure from such a presumption, then the burden of proof should be on the departure and it can only be done by a legitimate and a legitimized authority. Not the prime minister or the president, but as we have just heard, only the parliament as the legitimate representative of the people can overturn such a presumption. Thirdly, I would like to ask the question whether such a presumption for peace and against war is grounded or can be grounded in reality. This is an important question for me. A presumption for peace and against war will work if people can feel that somehow it is anchored in reality in the nature of things. Governments can enhance peace, but they cannot command it. People need to feel that peace is possible because it is grounded in reality. What then is the center of reality? You see, some people say that the center of reality is conflict. Then war seems to be inevitable. It would be part of the human condition. But if the center of reality is determined by love and peace, then war can be seen as a distortion of reality. And we can joyously and enthusiastically lean into the spirit of life and employ our courage and imagination to oppose war and create peace. But as Immanuel Kant said over 200 years ago, 
peace does not come natural. It needs to be waged. Peace is waged when we commit ourselves to a culture of peace. To create a culture of peace, we need personal and structural elements. Personally, each one of us is invited to develop a spirituality of peace. You don't need to be religious for a, developing a spirituality of peace. But the presumption for peace and against war needs to sit, sit deeply in your conscience. It must belong to your personal identity. It must be our ultimate concern. It must occupy a place in our conscience. On the structural level, our governments would help to create a culture of peace if they develop a structure and imagination of defense rather than participating in any striving for global dominance. The war in the Ukraine teaches us that countries have the right and duty to protect themselves, but they do not have the right to become an aggressor. We need to encourage peace studies in our schools and universities. Governments need to develop a peace core which have at the center of their concern, the creation of peace in the region. And we need to respectfully intensify our relationship with neighbors in Asia and the Pacific and refuse to take sides in any global struggle for dominance. I conclude, the Charter of the United Nations begins with the words, we the people of the United Nations determined to save succeeding generations from the scourge of war and to, firm, to affirm faith in fundamental human rights. The same emphasis can be found in the Hebrew Bible, where peace and justice will kiss each other. As we work to create a culture of peace by, by adopting a presumption for peace and against war, we do our bit to make a humane survival on this one earth we have possible. And remember, peace must be waged by every one of us. I'd now like to uh, invite our 
uh, final speaker, the Costa Rica ambassador Victor Vargas. He gave me a he gave me a lesson in pronunciation, but I'm not sure that I passed it. Uh, and he is um, going to talk to us about building new uh, global alliances for peace. And I can't think of anybody better to um, talk to us on this subject because Costa Rica has not had a military uh, force in that country since December 1948. I would like to share with you three ideas or three aspects on the experience of Costa Rica as a nation that abolished, abolished the armed forces 74 years ago and adopted neutrality 39 years ago. We've learned that peace sustains itself on a continuous construction in the most diverse fields, education and culture, foreign policy, and the courts of justice to cite three current examples. The act of abolition of militarism on December the 1st, 1948, consisted in the delivery of the keys to the main headquarters of the capital city by the Ministry of Security to the Ministry of Education to transform the military fortress into the National Museum. And in front of the imposing citadel on, a, on the top of a hill, Democracy Square was later built where the abolition day is celebrated annually. In each primary school in the country, this hymn is sung. My translation, I am sure is not poetic, but maybe it convey a little bit of the spirit that the children of Costa Rica are singing every year now. The 1st of December in our motherland, the history of the country was transformed. The sharp nail silence forever, the thunder of the rifle and the cannon. That is why today the world knows us and respects us for that decision of lifting notebooks and violins instead of a cruel and destructive rifle. Costa Rica without weapons has the strength of a large battalion. Let us sing with pride, long live peace and death to the cannon. And of course in singing this uh, hymn, uh, children have to discuss among themselves and with their teachers what is behind it and what is the culture of peace that comes with it. An eight-year-old law declares that peace is a fundamental human right for all inhabitants in a republic. Likewise, it prohibits the installation in national territory of any industry for the manufacture of weapons of war. In addition, it imposes on the state the obligation to include curricular content on peace in preschool, primary, and secondary education programs, to encourage peace studies in educational centers, and contribute to the establishment of a culture of peace in Costa Rican society. Now, this is a permanent challenge, easier to say than to do it. What constitute a real culture of peace and how it applies personally, in the family, in the community, in the nation. 
My second observation has to do with the fact that a compact democracy uh, located between continents and oceans, Costa Rica cannot and does not aspire to remove or replace a king in any national jurisdiction. I don't know if the expression exists in English. Nikita Nipone Rey does not have the power to remove or replace a king anywhere. But with moral authority, our country speaks for the costs of humanity in matters of war and peace. That is how three months ago, the president of the Republic, Rodrigo Chavez, spoke by telephone with President Volodymyr Zelensky, to whom he expressed Costa Rica's support for Ukraine in the face of the military aggression that is bleeding that European people. This was defined as support for Ukraine's request to join the Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development, as well as for the creation of a special court with the capacity to judge war crimes. The freedom of all the peoples of the world is the freedom of Costa Rica and the entire world, said Chavez, who described Zelensky as the leader of a people who defends themselves with their nails against the military attack. A sympathetic citizen of the aggressor party filed an action before the constitutional court demanding a reprimand from the judicial power to the executive power under the premise that the principle of neutrality of Costa Rica had been violated. Last Friday, that is five days ago, the magistrates concluded that support for the European country is limited within the framework of the international law mechanisms that Ukraine chose to address the conflict. That is to say, it is not about supporting the armed operation, but about the actions that Ukraine seeks from, uh, seeks from international law as a means of settling disputes, the Constitutional Court uh, said. The high judges concluded that the actions of the presidency of the Republic were in accordance with the pacifist tradition established in the constitutional order. This is to say that the question of Costa Rica expressing a viewpoint about a military conflict in another uh, area of the world is discussed by citizens everywhere as they discuss the results of uh, the soccer games or as they discuss uh, other problems that uh, of, of the many problems that Costa Rica faces. The consequences of that war for Costa Rica are already being felt in energy prices, in basic food prices, in world inflation, said the president. However, we also feel consequences in our hearts because an armed invasion of a neighboring and peaceful country by a world power is unjustifiable. And the Ministry of uh, Foreign Affairs had this to say, Costa Rica recognizes that the current military aggression against Ukraine constitute a violation of effective multilateralism, international law, and the Charter of the United Nations Organization, and continues to urge the parties to resume dialogue with a view to finding a peaceful solution to the conflict. Faithful to its tradition of neutrality, Costa Rica will continue to support the defense of freedom and human rights as well as the defense of Ukrainian 
Ukrainian sovereignty and territorial integrity with a firm conviction that the solution of, to any type of external threat can be found in international law and in the multilateral system of collective security. And now my third observation and final. Peace, like a respectable matron, a lady of uh, res uh, respectful age, suffers from cruelty of the press. On the other hand, work, like an attractive Venus or Adonis, enjoys the favor of the press. Certainly, this reflects the weight of history that prefers to speak not of periods of peace in human history, but periods between wars, of the interest of the military industrial complex and of the morbid nationalism embraced by warmongering regimes. It is the rule of hatred and force over brotherhood and understanding. In other words, the ultimate irrationality, since the abusive use of force is the failure of the rationality of diplomacy and politics. Are the prospects for world peace, effective democracy, sustainable development, ecological balance, respect for diversity, or the well-being of people better than last February or worse this September of 2022? The answer is obvious. Warmongering spreads like wildfire, while pacifism seems to be on the ropes. Last April, Costa Rica invited in New York, the representative of 22 member states of the United Nations that do not have standing armed forces, with the purpose of considering the possibility of becoming a group that speaks with one voice in favor of uplifting peace and against rampant, rampant warmongering. The consultations continue. And who knows, as Helen just said, a simple pebble can steer up a large lake. The democracy of the 21st century is increasingly the articulation of powerful social movements. Perhaps we are still in time to build a new global alliance for peace, which unites so many scattered forces in a single bundle of wheels. Those who fight from the civil society against climate change mark the way forward. Parliamentary leaders, political parties, institutional mechanisms of democracy will have robust support to promote urgent actions of dialogue, understanding and peace that lessen the threat of major conflagrations. This could be a call to action to amalgamate millions of people in the struggle for peace for the world today. Thanks for listening to the Raising Peace podcast and thanks to our guests, Alison Bronowski, Reverend Dr. Thorwald Lorenzen and former Australian Costa Rican Ambassador Victor Vargas for being on the podcast. This episode was produced by James Cox and Christopher Walker from Raising Peace, mixed and edited by Audiocraft. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening.